Hello and good evening. And while Alex and Hugh make themselves comfortable, I'd like to welcome you to the National Library this evening. I'm Catherine Favell, and it's my pleasure to look after the library's community outreach activities, which includes events like this evening. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Ngunnawal people. It's been a wonderful week, I think, of conversation and anniversary and remembrance, and I would like to thank the Ngunnawal people for the privilege that I have to be able to live on this beautiful country that I call home. Tonight we're here with Hugh Mackay to talk about his seventh novel, and I think you may be a little surprised as I was. I was saying to Hugh just a minute ago, he keeps messing with our heads. Just when we think we know what he's writing, he turns out with something different. It's been wonderful to have Hugh back with us this evening, and I'm particularly grateful to the ANU and to Pam Macmillan Publishers for supporting tonight's event. We couldn't do what we do without the publishing and writing community of Australia. Now, Hugh is known for his insights into the human condition and his extensive list of works cover themes of ethics, human psychology and social behaviours. But tonight we're talking about advertising, a subject very dear to the library's heart. Some of you may have seen our exhibition, The Cell, which closed at the end of April. 30,000 people came to see that show to look at how the advertising world had changed in the last couple of hundred years and to reminisce and to... Imagine what life would be like if all of those ads were really true. Um, Hugh, of course, is going to set us straight, I'm sure, and, draw, and he's drawing on his experience in the advertising industry. Joining Hugh is a very, another very dear friend of ours, Alex Sloan. Alex shocked us all when she decided to retire from broadcasting with the ABC last year, but we're very, very delighted that she hasn't retired from our microphones. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Have a lovely evening. And please join me in welcoming Hugh and Alex. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for turning up on a pretty rugged Tuesday night, let's face it, but don't we love the cold? Um, actually, we need to welcome Hugh because he's a new Canberran. He's one of us. Uh, it's pretty... <laughs> and... I truly think I've tapped into this whole selling the dream thing because about midway through last year, I got a phone call from Hugh and his lovely wife, Sheila, and it was very, you know, don't say anything, but we're thinking of coming to live in Canberra. And so it took a bowl of soup and my lovely husband, Rob's special Canberra tour, and the whole dream was sold, wasn't it? That's right. It <laughs> fell into place. That's right. It's <laughs> First impressions of being an actual resident here now? Uh, well, we're still in love, of course, so it's not fair to ask us. We just love everything about Canberra. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people who've been here for 50 years love everything about it. Um, but it's magical. And autumn, of course, has been stunning. Are people asking you to justify yourself? When, well, of course. When, what... well, why did you move here? They say as though, are you insane? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's Sydney people saying that. Uh, no, uh, there are many reasons. As, as usual, there's never a simple explanation for something like this. But uh, the, the official story, which is one of the many factors, is that my wife is giving up her clinical medical career and is going to be teaching in the medical school at ANU. 
So it's um, a neat deal. So it's a win-win, really. It's a yeah, win for us. Well, we get Sheila. Well, yeah, you, you get Sheila. She's <laughs> she's the uh, yeah she's the star of the of the couple. Uh, and I and you are apparently very happy to have her. Yeah. Our two youngest grandchildren also live in Canberra. That's a bonus. But we're certainly not saying that that's the reason we're coming to Canberra, or they might think <laughs> that uh, we intend to be babysitters. <laughs> um, on to this fantastic book. And Hugh, I've read so many of your books, um, both your non-fiction and we in fact spoke about Yes, um, infidelity, infidelity yep. um, as well. And I think I read another one of your novels too. But this one, it was suggested... Tell us the story about how this book came about for you to be writing satire. Well, uh, I mean, the, back, the background is that my fiction... Actually, I heard a, another writer saying a couple of years ago that his latest novel, he felt, had been published under the Official Secrets Act... <laughs> <laughs> it had so little publicity. Uh, well, mine have never been quite that bad, but it's true to say that the reading public have comprehensively ignored my novels in favour of my non-fiction, so I shouldn't complain, because uh, people do buy the non-fiction books. But after Infidelity, which sold very badly, and it was a book I was really pleased mm -hmm. with, uh, I said to the publisher, well, I think that's probably it, is it? You know, we're doing it. And she said, no. Uh, we think you should have a go at satire. Because I had written some comedy scenes in several of the previous novels, and as soon as she said the word satire, I was gone. I mean, I was just off the leash. <laughs> I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. I really... And, and more or less, that was over lunch, she said that. By the end of the lunch, I had the key characters in my head. I knew it would be set in an advertising agency, the perfect place uh, for a satirical novel. Uh, and the general trajectory of the story came very quickly. So you've always loved satire, as a yes. Why? I have. Why? I have. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, I like humour in general. I, 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 I like funny stuff. But satire, I think, is is uh, uh, it goes an extra step. What I love about satire is its capacity to make you laugh. Uh, at the superficial level. It's, all, it's always about it. It's all, good satire is almost always very contemporary. It's almost always skewering something, a sort of foible that, that we identify in contemporary life. But all comedy does that to some extent. But satire does that, and at the same time, I think there's always a shock of recognition with good satire that people say, well, we're laughing at those people in that advertising agency, but hang on. This is actually about us. And that was true from Jonathan Swift on. Mm. Uh, the satirists that I've really loved, um, um, people like Kingsley Amos and uh, Anthony Powell, Evelyn Moore, perhaps my favourite satirist, uh, you can't escape the feeling that this is really about what human beings are like. And it just happens to be set in this or that contemporary so location. So it tells us the truth. Yeah, I think, I think it does. Um, and it's not s simply funny, you know. It, it, in writing this book, there were many... Uh, this is probably an embarrassing thing to admit, but there were many scenes <laughs> which made me laugh when I was writing them. I thought, actually, that's very funny. <laughs> and then in the next moment, <laughs> I thought, is it funny or is it deeply sad? You know, is this, mm. is this a tragedy? Well, they're not or? far apart, <laughs> no, are they? No, they're not, yeah. and especially not in satire, mm. because we are exposing something about what we're really like. And 
it's a bittersweet with the beautiful, I don't know if everyone's seen the front cover, but um, John Clark um, has beautiful, the late, the much missed, if someone asked me who should write a satirical novel about the advertising business, someone with inside knowledge who could write well and was extremely clever and amusing, I'd say, see if Hugh McKay is available. I mean, that's what an extraordinary... Uh. Well, he Gift loved it. That was he absolutely you. loved it and yeah. offered to the publisher to write an endorsement. So that was, you know, it was kind of like, that was a dream come true because uh, no doubt in my mind he's Australia's and New Zealand's master satirist was. Um, and then within just a couple of weeks of this being printed, he was dead. Uh, so there was that awful feeling, you know, will people see that and think, gosh, are we exploiting the memory of John Clark? Well, of course not at all, but... I, it, it's very poignant for me. I'm, mm. you know, I, I regarded him as a friend, um, and to get that kind of endorsement, well, yeah, and to have him better. and Brian Weekly yes. just shining that light yes. on just yes. the nonsense that we get blamed for actually here in Canberra, but usually yes. going on up there. On, on, you'll get blamed for that now, yes, just yes. as a Canberran. Yes. Um, you say, I love in the acknowledgements at the back, and I don't know if it's a kind of protection message, you know, some of my best friends um, have worked in advertising. None of them are in this book. <laughs> Tell me about yes. that. Well, yes, uh, six or seven really good friends who I've met uh, various stages of my life because I, I was kind of close to the industry. My father uh, was in advertising. He was an advertising copywriter. Um, and because I was in the public opinion research and social research business, many of the clients who bought my research were advertising agencies and marketing companies, also politi political parties and others, but, um, but in particular people from the marketing industry. Um, so I saw the whole thing. In fact, for eight years in the 60s, before I started my own research business, I ran uh, a, an opinion research business that was actually owned by an advertising agency. So we were housed in the belly of the agency. I saw the whole thing from the inside. But yeah, six or seven of, of my people I'd regard as really good friends have, have worked um, in the advertising business at various stages. I sent them all uh, a complimentary copy of the book just to sort of defuse this. Um, I haven't heard from any of them. <laughs> I'm still waiting. There's uh, none here tonight. <laughs> no, none here tonight. Actually, a, a bloke who I barely knew, who used to run, was the creative director of a very large agency in Melbourne, um, wrote to me just out of the blue, haven't, haven't heard of him for 30 years, uh, to say that he'd bought it and loved it, but it had made him physically cringe at various points. So I thought that was that very frank. That could almost go on the front cover too, yeah, I yeah, think. You yeah, know, it that's, could. That's, yeah. you, you obviously got your arrows yes, straight, yes. straight in. You yes. told, actually, just speaking of your dad, um, you told a beautiful story on ABC Canberra yesterday about road trips as a kid. Oh, yes. Well, my father lived and breathed advertising. Uh, you know, and if you, if you grow up in a family where, the, where that's the breadwinner, as he, that was that kind of family... Uh, as in advertising, we're all incredibly advertising conscious, but you know, he would bring new products home that he was going to be writing ads for. We all had to try them. Um, a, a memorable uh, example of that was a cosmetic, a, a mud pack product. That, that, you do have that, beautiful skin. That, <laughs> that my mother 
<laughs> was forced to try. And she put this thing on and stung. And she was sort of screaming, get, get this off, get this off. Um, anyway, he, she did her duty and tried it, and then he wrote a campaign about how wonderful it was. But, yes, the highway thing. Uh, uh, whenever we would go driving, in, in those days, uh, traffic signs were all in words. They're now all in symbols. But if you came to a curvy bit of the highway, there would be a sign that says, Curves. Every time we passed that sign, my father would quote one of his own slogans, Curves, beautified by Burley. <laughs> it's ingrained. So, it's ingrained, yeah. yeah. So I, that's right, I was sort of slogan happy I'm as a kid. I'm going to think that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was no doubt when the, with the whole... When the, this was thrown over the, the lunch... Satire, you just went straight to advertising. It yeah. was just yes. fertile ground. That's interesting. I, yeah. yeah, I suppose because I knew it so well. I think one of the other uh, characteristics of good satire, and I hope this comes into that category, but people will make that judgment, but I think the author you know, has to be, in a sense, part of the target. You know, it has to be your tribe. That's, that's one of the things about Evelyn Moore. You know, one of the great things about his... Spooky. It's his own class yeah. that he's that he's skewering, and so he's right inside it. Um, and people in the advertising and marketing business certainly think of me as one of their tribe. I don't think of myself in that way, but, but they do, and as they paid the bills, I suppose I should be more grateful. Um, but, but so I feel as though it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of my, my tribe. It's not as though they're strangers to me and I'm standing at, at a distance and chucking rocks at them, not at all. Now, I won't give away just so Hugh doesn't panic to say she's going to give away the ending or anything like that. But in Selling the Dream, we have the agency of KK and C. You deliberately stayed away from KK and K. Yes. Uh, KKK. So you've got Bob John, John is spelled J-H-O-N, yes. and Marcus Craven. You couldn't resist that one. No, I couldn't. No. <laughs> no. Well, the, part, the three partners of the agency uh, are sort of stereotypes, I suppose, um, and it's true that none of them are based on an actual character, but they're all composites. Uh, Bob Kelman, who's the senior sort of suit account executive type and the managing director, senior partner of the agency, one of his colleagues uh, describing him and, and trying to praise him says, you know, the thing about Bob is he keeps his drinking problem really well hidden. <laughs> uh, and then there's the finance bloke, um, John Cornfield, who, uh, of whom it is said, uh, every agency he's worked for, he makes them look as though they're incredibly profitable in ways that seem to bear no relationship to the business they actually do. And uh, Marcus Craven, the creative director, uh, who was Marcus with a C and became Marcus with a K, I had a lot of fun with them all changing their names because advertising is like a branch of show business where people are always fiddling with their names. The famous Australian example was a creative director called Simon Reynolds who put an extra I in Simon, so he became he Simon the grim, Reynolds. The Grim Reaper. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Grim yeah. Reaper man, yeah. yes. Uh, and why did he do that? Uh, because it was numerologically advantageous to him to have a double I in Simon. That's the kind of thing that goes on in advertising agencies. Uh, but Marcus, um, he's, he's known as a strategic weeper um, because he's capable of bursting into tears uh, with almost no provocation, which is a major selling point in the agency, partly because clients think he's incredibly sincere because he's always dabbing his eyes, 
but also because when new work is being shown <laughs> and Marcus starts weeping at the sight of some of his own commercials and so on, people, the clients are inclined to think it must be powerful stuff if it's moving Marcos to tears. So he's, he's famous as a strategic weeper. Uh, but the key character in the agency is a man called Link, um, Lincoln the Hunter. I won't describe why he's called Lincoln the Hunter, but he created the as his middle name, so he would be Lincoln the Hunter. Uh, and I'll, I'll, can I just read you a yeah, you paragraph must, about you Lincoln? Uh, this will give you a sense of him. I mean, he is the arch, uh, archetypal con man. Um, people describe him as a force of nature. The people who talk to him say, you, you just feel like buying something from him, uh, even though no one likes him. Um, but someone is summarising his recent activities. In the past 12 months alone, he's said to have revolutionised the global marketing of so-called clean coal technology for the rebadged Blue Skies Energy Corporation, consulted to several governments on ways to improve their country's happiness index, mainly by changing the way it's measured, <laughs> and booked out the first commercial spaceship bound for Mars in 2030, no refunds. He was also, behind the, the, he was also the brain behind the launch of King Neptune's kelp burgers, made from farmed seaweed, and those microwavable frozen krill fritters, that's him too. But here's the big one. He's grooming one of the Kardashians to run for the US presidency as the first step in establishing another Kennedy-style political dynasty. And this is before <laughs> Kanye announced. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. So you weren't far wrong. <laughs> no, no, that's right, that's right. They didn't have that president he, then. He, he doesn't actually have any ideas himself, does he? No, Link. Oh, no, no, he's a complete bowerbird. Uh, he has strategic ideas, uh, most of which are crazy. About money. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and what ways of... Um, I mean, he, at one stage he's... Uh, He's flirting with a, uh, an airline that's considering appointing this agency as uh, uh, to do their advertising. It's an Asian budget airline called Budget Express. Budget spelled B-U-D-J-E-T. So there's a little scene where Link, uh, drawing on something that was given to him by someone else. I mean, as you say, these ideas are never original. He's always recycling someone else's idea and he's urging this airline to make sure people don't just say Budget Express, they've got to say Bud Jet Express. So all the emphasis should be on buds. Everyone should receive a rosebud when they get off a flight. They should paint a rosebud on the tail of every plane, etc., etc. That's that's that's. The, I felt for it. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> mm, well, it never happened. Then there's Otis, which probably gets quite close to, as you say... There's a bit of me in Otis. Yes, there is a bit of you. He's or about the gut that he's me. about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's the research strategic person. Um, uh, he's a German who's uh, a frustrated academic. He, he has a PhD uh, and he wants to write a book about uh, how the mind is actually located in the gut. Um, so he even has a title for it gut feelings uh, but anyway that's uh, he, he works with <laughs> can, I tell you, yeah, can I read you something about Otis uh, when Otis left university with a glittering PhD in behavioural science he had dreamt of securing a job in a university department awash with sufficient grant money to support cutting edge research into Otis's favourite subject 
the mind-body fallacy. With his idealism burned to a bright, burnished to a bright glow, Otis wanted to prove beyond all doubt that the mind was nothing more than a useful metaphor and that some of the most significant drivers of human behaviour could be found in the digestive organs, especially the gut. He didn't discount the significance of the brain and central nervous system, but he felt the role of the gut had been seriously underestimated. His search for such a post had been fruitless, etc., etc. I'll edit this a bit. Uh, but then he responded to an ad uh, for, for a job that he could hardly believe. It, it was looking for someone to perform cutting-edge research into the principal drivers of human behaviour, which just sounded like Otis. Everything about the job sounded perfect, except that it was in the research department of a company that made hair care products. Uh, he was duly interviewed, he got the job, etc. Stunned by the de devotion and skill of his colleagues, he found himself caught up in the work. Away from the lab, he found it difficult to explain to family or friends that he was working on the development of a placebo gel that would be sold as a treatment for the wider centre parting effect in middle-aged women suffering from stress. The product had begun life as a hormonal gel, but when early research found no statistically significant difference between the effects of the gel with and without hormone content, <laughs> it was decided to eliminate the expensive hormonal ingredient. <laughs> when he once hinted in conversation with a colleague over coffee in the staff canteen that given the distress experienced by women affected by this type of hair loss, there seemed something morally dubious about designing and promoting a product known to have no therapeutic properties, he was met with a blank stare. Ah, his colleague finally said, I see what you're driving at. You do not yet understand. We're in the business of influencing human behaviour, not curing wider centre partings. We are unlocking the mysteries of human motivation. Who gives a fig about vanishing hair? The women who suffer from this problem, Otis ventured, we are facilitating their capacity for self-healing at best. But that's a collateral benefit, my young friend. What we're really doing, at least this week, is determining whether a little more mauve in the pack design will enhance purchase intention. <laughs> so Otis uh, gets caught up in all that stuff. He, he develops a theory, and this is one of these points where I think the satire has something for all of us. He develops a theory called the law of inverse significance, because he's noticed, as indeed I noticed earlier in my career, that the more trivial the product, the more sophisticated and expensive will be the research that goes into it. Pet food is his favourite example. He talks about the German pet food company where the finest minds in Germany are bent to the task of separating pet owners from their money. Uh, and so he comes up with this, this um, law of inverse significance. Uh, the, the more trivial it is, the more significant the research will be. And I think that's actually an almost universal mm. law. It's not just in the marketing business. We're all a bit like that. No, the things we obsess about most are often the least significant that's, things in our lives. And that's, that's true satire. When you're laughing, you then stop and nearly yeah. weep. Yes. Because yes. it's... You, we will, we've named all the blokes, um, and this is deliberate. Mm. Mm. This is men running KKK. Oh, men are running KKK. 
although in fact the two strongest women in uh, two strongest characters in the novel are both women. Um, uh, we, we won't say too much about no, them, um, except no, they, are, they are uh, admirable, admirable <laughs> people uh, in many ways, and, and you can't really say that for any of the blokes. <laughs> Do you think um, that is still the same? It's still the blokes. Uh, uh, women have become much more present in the advertising and marketing industry. Uh, it's still the case, and this is an old, old story, isn't it? Well, it's a new story. Um, most of the chief executives are males. Um, but by far the majority of the staff of most advertising agencies and marketing companies these days are women. But they're still not mostly in the chief executive role. If we can, and I won't give away this, but there is to be a new product um, called the Ripper. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, the Ripper is an accident. Uh, like many new products, it's a snack food uh, product uh, to be directed at um, teenagers. Uh, it was accidentally discovered in an Indian laboratory where they were trying to produce uh, a curry-based dry snack food. Uh, and they introduced some rhubarb into it and came up with uh, an extraordinary sensation in the mouth, as though the skin is actually being ripped off your throat. Uh, so they decided that this was... That, that was part of a global, a multinational corporation called GBH. I won't, I won't tell you what GBH stands for. Uh, so they decided they would call the product the Ripper, uh, for that reason. Uh, and they, uh, they were doing all kinds of taste tests. Otis was involved in some of the research in developing a campaign uh, for the Ripper. It had the effect, it was so violent that the kids who were testing it would sort of run from the room to throw up um, and it became a contest between the kids in this rather animated group discussion, the sort of fo focus group that I described. Um, to see who could actually retain the contents of their stomach after having swallowed uh, one of these pellets. Uh, and one of them uh, encouraging the other one to have it. Oh, it says on the pack, may contain traces of poison um, <laughs> because uh, rhubarb contains traces of poison, you know, oxalic acid. Uh, and that's regarded by GBH as a major, major selling point because, you know, it takes kids right to the edge of danger. They say, you know, products like alcohol and cigarettes have all the advantages over us because they, you know, can cause so many health problems. So may contain traces of poison will be a huge selling point. But as one of the boys in the group remarks when, they're, when he's trying to encourage one of the other kids who's read this and doesn't want to have a bar of it to say, go on, go on, have a go at this, that won't kill you. Uh, and that actually becomes the big selling point for the product. It won't kill you. <laughs> Just to read a little bit with the... This is going to be textbook BSUF. You love the acronyms. And the uh, well, well uh, the, the marketing business is full of acronyms, yes. Big spend up front. We want everyone under the age of 24 to know about the Ripper within one month of launch. Link cuts in. And Jerry, if I may... We want everyone over the age of 40 to think it's disgraceful and disgusting, yes, just saying. Yes, yes. Which is exactly yes. what happens, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, the outrage that can go on yes. from the middle age and, yes. the, and it runs away. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many, there are many marketing organisations uh, that do market um, food and drink products to young people who are determined that older people will think it's all outrageous and 
will hate it, which will enhance its appeal to the younger consumer, of course. Mm. It did remind me my daughter once bought one of those lollipop things that was blue and her tongue actually went bright blue and all the skin yes. came off the yes. tongue. Oh, right. And oh, of good. course I said, we're never getting one of those again and of course that's all she ever wanted. Yes, so that's right. Thought, yeah. And her friends were saying, hey, cool, can I get one yeah, of those? Yeah, rips the tongue off. So yeah. um, I'll probably open it up to questions in a moment because this is a nice intimate little room and we've got Hugh McKay, Canberran sitting here, so get ready with your questions. But um, I suppose um, advertising is a key element of capitalism, isn't it? It's yes. Um, yes, it's the, it, it's the handmaiden of capitalism, mm. really. Uh, one of the things that I think is important for us to... I mean, what this book exposes, I suppose, um, if it's news to anyone, is that people in advertising have an enormous amount of fun. I mean, they, they, they really love what they do and they take it absurdly seriously... Um, but, but what the research into the effect of advertising on all of us says very clearly is that both the, the, the great advocates uh, for advertising and the harshest critics of advertising both get it hopelessly wrong. They both assume that it is this insidious, pervasive influence that's making us do things we don't want to do, um, changing our attitudes, shaping our behaviour in all kinds of ways. The evidence for that simply doesn't exist. Almost all advertising has the effect, and this is the intended effect, of reinforcing the existing situation. So marketing companies uh, do all sorts of things to get us to try their product in the first place. Once we've become users, they're prepared to spend millions or billions annually reinforcing our uh, uh, our contentment, our connection with that. The people who read luxury car advert this is an old piece of research, but still valid. The people who read luxury car advertisements most avidly are the people who've just bought one. Uh, because it reinforces, why did you spend $140,000 on the Ah, it was to get the zero offset steering. Uh, or something. Um, so... And that's true all the way through to Coca-Cola. I mean, the, the, the target audience for almost all advertising, except a new product, the target audience is the people who already love us. It's trying to get us not to change, but to stay the same. Uh, they do other things to try and get us to change, cut the price, hand out samples, uh, change the pack, all of that. But advertising itself is a... I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a benign... Uh, thing. I mean, uh, I think the well, intrusion... or alcohol ads at sports. No, no. Yeah. But, it, but see, even there, I mean... Gambling. Did, did smoking advertisements persuade people to take up smoking? This, that controversy will never go away. We'll never really know the answer to that because the social pressure to take... If you see a program like Mad Men, where everyone's smoking all the time, that's how it was. I mean, when I was... Uh, but the fact that, that the cigarette companies fought it so hard, didn't that just reinforce that it worked? Yeah, well, it, it, that's how it appeared. But most of what they were doing was reinforcement advertising. They were trying to keep their loyal consumers. Um, but obviously that's not the total story. There is some persuasion that goes on, some conversion. But 95% reinforcement, maybe 5% uh, conversion. And the whole idea that advertising could be influencing us without us knowing. Like, 
like all the controversy about so-called subliminal advertising, where people think, gee, are they getting at us even though we don't know? That was all based on an experiment that was done in an American cinema, I think in the 1950s, where the word uh, popcorn was flashed subliminally uh, on the screen, subliminally meaning below the, below the threshold of, of perception, so you couldn't actually, you might have thought you saw something, but you weren't sure what it was. And when they flashed the word on the screen, sales of popcorn went up at interval. Uh, and this was published in a respectable research uh, journal as an example of subliminal advertising. The term was uh, coined in that article. The whole thing was a hoax. It never happened. The experiment did not exist. And other people tried to um, replicate it, and of course no one could, because you can't be influenced by something you haven't perceived. Uh, there is no such thing as subliminal uh, messages. So, you know, that, that, that was a very nasty... I, I, I don't know the backstory. I don't know what the motivations were. But certainly the, the social effect of that was to spook people mm. about the fact that propaganda might be influencing us without us knowing. Not possible. Where I, I think the worst, the thing I worry about most with advertising is uh, the way it has infected the political process. I think the, the application of commercial marketing techniques and especially advertising to political campaigning I don't worry about it being influential. What I worry about it is that what, what I worry about it is that it trivialises the process. If you if you're going to promote brand Turnbull, brand Shorten, brand Liberal, brand Labor, etc., if, you, if you're actually going to have strategists in the back room thinking like that and controlling uh, talking points for the day and slogans and all that and creating uh, campaigns, particularly at election time, the net effect of that it's on Donald the electorate... It, well, the end point is Donald Trump. Absolutely yeah. right, Alex. If, if, you go, if you're going to market uh, politicians and parties like brands, you will end up with... I mean, Donald Trump is a brand. That's what he is, brand Trump. It's like electing Coca-Cola, president of the US, you know, for, for a can of soft drink, he's not doing too badly. Um, but... But what it does here is trivialise the process. So, so the voters start to think it's brand A and brand B. And if, if, you, if you treat it on the, uh, on the political side, if you treat it like consumer mass marketing, then on the voter stroke consumer side, it'll just look like... Because, as, they, you know, some, some, you'll hear some arguments that we're seeing the last days of capitalism and, you know, if advertising is that key part, we have got Trump as the ultimate salesman that we've all bought into this yes. dream in some way. Yes, and, and, that, and that will be salutary. I mean, I think a lot of Americans and people around the world are thinking, how did this happen? Well, we know how it happened. Mm. It happened for all the reasons that I explore in here. Uh, and, and it could happen here. You could end up with, um, you know, a completely vacuous... Clive Palmer or Pauline Hanson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th there are some things that save us in Australia from some of those um, excesses that we fear, like One Nation, uh, compulsory voting, and what I think is still a bit inadequate, but nevertheless, by world standards, a reasonably generous 
social welfare system, which means we don't have vast tracts of really disaffected people like in America. Uh, the millions and millions of people who are really trapped uh, with, with declining real incomes, no serious social security, they were absolute sitting ducks for the Trump story. Mm. Now, we, we don't have that. I, mean, I think we can be proud of our welfare system. It should be a lot better, but it's good by world standards. Uh, and even though I've over the years equivocated about compulsory voting, uh, mm -hmm. The more I think about it, the more I'm oh. pa <laughs> a passionate advocate yeah, no, for compulsory voting. Yeah. Yeah. Let, me, let me open it up now to... Um, you've got in this nice, intimate room. Um, Hughes would love your questions. Might just like You might just solve the state of the world for us. But, yes. Oh, you're handing around oh, you're, you're the microphone. The microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but have you got any questions? Come on. Open up. Here we go. <laughs> At the front here. Yeah, there we go. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is, um, do you think advertising is an art form? Ah, um, yes, it's an art form in the sense that words and pictures and music are created um, by creative artists serving a commercial purpose. Um, it's extraordinary how many people have gone on to be... I mean, Sidney Nolan was a commercial artist in an advertising agency. Uh, Peter Carey ran his own advertising agency before he became a novelist. He was a copywriter. Uh, Ray I think... Lawrence. Ray Lawrence. Yes, Ray Not Lawrence. Not Happy Jam. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, and many of the world's most famous novelists uh, spent some of their apprenticeship writing copy for advertising. So it is an art form in that sense, but it is, of course, a peculiar art form in that it's in, not in the service even of politics, it's in the service of commerce. Uh, does that make it ugly? Um, I'd, I'd rather it were in the service of commerce than politics, frankly. I mean, one of the things... I, I, I said this to a group of people in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, and there was an almost audible hissing, booing protest at, at, at such an outrageous statement, but I believe it to be true, and that is that advertising has a kind of naive integrity about it. Ad, ad, advertisers actually have to tell the truth. Politicians don't, but if an advertisement can be found to be untrue, then the company responsible can be prosecuted. I wish we could do that with political promises. Um, so, generally speaking, I mean, of course, they'll gloss everything and, uh, you know, it'll Coke, be... Coke, it's the real thing. Coke. Coke's the real the thing. thing, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> um, but it's not a lie. I mean, if you, if you want a highly acidic, heavily sugared, <laughs> carbonated soft drink, well, Coke is that, and it's not really pretending to be anything else. Um, and, and that's generally speaking the case. You know, if they're, they're, they're selling you a product... Oh, the other thing that I think gives it this kind of integrity is no-one is in any doubt about the purpose. No-one no is in any doubt about... What, I mean, if you don't like advertising, you don't tune in, you don't read the ad, you, you don't watch commercial television or you mute the sound or something. But if you watch it, uh, you know what it is. It's 
Unilever trying to sell you soap. Well, no one's pretending that it's something more insidious than that. So, in that sense, quite naive. And Link, uh, Lincoln the Hunter, this, uh, the anti-hero of this book, he's actually the sort of walking embodiment of that. There is a kind of naive integrity. He's an appalling person, but at least everyone knows where they stand with Link. He's always on the make. He's always trying to persuade and sell and influence uh, power players, etc. And, th and that transparency, so he is a kind of personification of what I think about advertising. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and from a very, I mean, we worry about the, the number of commercials that little kids are exposed to. Um, two things to be said about that. One is parents have always had and continue to have infinitely more influence on what their children's attitudes and behaviour are like than commercials do, unless the parents have abdicated their responsibility. And the other thing is that because kids are so exposed to all this thing at an early age, they're very cynical about it uh, from a very early age. You know, I think we don't have to worry too much. I mean, very young children, yes. Uh, I wouldn't like to think they were being exploited by... And I always refuse to do research on young children for that reason. But generally speaking, I think it's easy to exaggerate the effect. But back to your question, yes, it's an art form. Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a blend of art and science um, because there's an art, there's a lot of art goes, goes, creative work goes into the words, the pictures, the music, and there's a lot of science that goes into the strategy. Did you want to ask a question? And put your hand up if you're wanting to ask I was interested in your comment on subliminal advertising. How effective is product placement? Extremely effective. Um, oh, well, sorry, uh, product placement. I'm not sure. I was thinking of product sampling. Sampling is the most effective marketing technique there is. In other words, give, giving you a sample of the product for nothing. You clean your teeth with it. It's either terrible or it's good and you're much more likely to try it if someone's given you a free sample than if they just advertise to you. Product sampling, yeah. yes. Product, the, the, the incidental um, um, business of placing products like seeing that people are drinking Pepsi or Coke or that they're driving a Lexus or a um, um, Cadillac or something, uh, no-one knows. Um, but the marketing companies, of course, will pay a lot of money for those product placements because that's all they have to do. They don't have to create a commercial or a campaign. They just have to get the product in the movie. And the, the probability is that it contributes... I mean, it's, I'm, I'm equivocal in this answer, Rob, because it, it, it is complicated. The single most significant factor impelling a person to buy a product, a brand, and not a product, that's another question as to why they get into a category, but within a category, the single biggest factor impelling a person to buy a brand is that when they think of that category, that's the first brand they think of. Now, for most of us, the first brand you think of is the one you bought last, because that's the one that's in your cupboard, that's what you've been eating or drinking or washing with or whatever it is. So that first brand awareness, link explains this whole theory in the book, uh, and he's right. Um, but that, that first brand awareness is a huge predictor of what people will buy. So 
product placement, like billboards on football grounds, etc., is all just designed not to make out a case or put forward a selling proposition, but just to get the brand into people's heads so that it might be the first brand they think of when they're in that category next time. Um, incidentally, um, without giving away too much, I should say in the epilogue to this book, there's a, there's a bit of an interesting twist where uh, we encounter a clergyman <laughs> who uses product placements in his sermons. Uh, funded, uh, his ministry is funded by commercial organisations in return for product placements in his sermons. There's a really obvious okay. one at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you wouldn't think that might have something to do with nappies. But, uh, <laughs> um, any, a question up the back here? Just raise your hand and our lovely helper will... Hi, um, Charles Duhigg, uh, who works, I think, on the New York Times, wrote a book about the power of habit. And he sort of expressed this idea that most of what we buy is deeply habitual. Yes. Once you start shopping at Coles, you will never, ever stop except... And this is where one of the retailers in America started looking at, at what point do habits break when you, when, you know, in your life? Yes. Uh, the first target point, oddly enough, not when you get married, but when you have your first child. Yes. There was another target point of divorce, but whatever. And the advertisers started trying to find the point where individual consumers were going through this and target them. Yes. Now, if you couple that with tools where most of the traditional mass market advertising is dying, we don't physically shop, we don't read newspapers, we don't watch television, it's all over. Well, it's not all over. We We still spend more time on television than on the net. The second most richest public company in the world is Google. Yes. 97% of their income comes from advertising. Yes, absolutely. They sell your eyeballs. Yeah. So the whole idea is they customise and profile every eyeball they see and sell it to the highest bidder. Yes. At what point does your sort of comfortable statement that advertising hasn't changed anything... Well, I didn't quite say that. ...get down to this point of vulnerability that, (laughs) as Hal Varian, their chief economist, said... If I know enough about you, it won't be an ad. It will be a helpful suggestion at just the time when you're most susceptible. Yes. Uh, at that that's point, very you true. really have to worry, don't you? Yes, that is very true. I've got funeral plans coming up on my um, <laughs> Google. I oh, heard about your <laughs> retirement. retirement. You know. <laughs> yeah, look, now it's, a, it's an extremely important issue. Uh, and thank you for raising it, because, of course, we haven't talked at all. There is talk in the book about the social media thing. Um, uh, and, and it's a completely new world of advertising. I mean, traditional advertising agencies are dying out if they don't get the new way of doing it. And as you say, it's very tailored. Uh, they are, I mean, the more we hear about what uh, governments... Um, media companies and commercial organisations, marketing companies know about us, the scarier it gets. I mean, it is the case that your smartphone is like a walking autobiography. Um, uh, In some cases, including recording your conversations. Now, that's going to be more and more the case in the future. Uber can tell a lot about the customers who've called from data retrieved from the phone on which the call was made, uh, including whether the phone... I'm not sure that this is Uber or another 
a competitor, but one of those companies, um, I don't want to defame Uber, uh, it can tell, for example, if you're a female uh, and if your phone is almost dead. And so if it's late at night and you're a female and your phone is almost dead, the price can go up almost limitlessly because you're desperate for a cab. Um, so, yeah, that's right. So that, that I regard as absolutely pernicious, appalling manipulation of a person's circumstances, different from advertising. Where advertising pops up uh, in Facebook or uh, on Google or wherever, again, I think I would argue that almost always it's about the brand, not about the category. In other words, I, I get, for some reason... Um, Alex has been getting funeral. funeral plans. I've been getting spring handbags. <laughs> it's your, your natty dressing, <laughs> yeah. you know. I'd never thought that I needed a new handbag for spring, but I'm getting this message repeatedly. Well, it has absolutely zero influence on me. I'm not about to uh, become a handbag carrier. Um, so most of... If it's going to influence me, it would be about a brand in a category where I already shop, and if some alternative brand is offering something that, att in, that attracts me, then I might be tempted. Um, but here, this is the main thing about advertising, that it's about getting you to change brands, not getting you to adopt a new category. And by the way... Yes. Yeah. Which really becomes the issue. Yes. Most online advertising is crude. Yes. I worry about online advertising in 20 years yes. time, when an extra 20 years of some of the smartest brains on the planet mm. start applying themselves to each of us as individuals mm. and what we are susceptible to and when. Yes. Because at that point, it won't be spring handbags, I'm sorry. Yes. It will be tailored at precisely your situation right yes. now. And they're wanting to sell you some kind of scarf to, because you're going to go outside tonight and it's going to be cold. Yes. Oh, that's true. It's, all, it's and, almost getting there now. Look, yeah, 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 it is. But, um, you know, I remember reading 10 years ago about how when you're walking past a retailer, you will get a message on your smartphone about something that's on sale in that. Well, that's now already... That's not science fiction. That now actually happens. Uh, so I agree with you. 20 years from now, who knows? You know, we may be getting messages beamed directly into the chip located in our head instead of a smartphone. Uh, I mean, the, the, the only way to stay pure from all this, of course, is at the moment, don't have a smartphone. Uh, and I, in fact, I read someone recently saying, if you want to have a confidential conversation with someone, leave your phone at home, go out into an open space somewhere, keep your voice down and talk. It's like old spy movies. And even then, you can't be sure that the person you're talking to isn't wired. <laughs> so it is a spooky... It is a spooky... A spooky um, uh, scenario when, when you try and imagine how this will all go. If we're talking about commercial advertising via these media, it will still be the case that to the extent any influence occurs, almost all of it will be influencing me to buy um, Rosella rather than Heinz. And I don't regard that as something that threatens Western civilization. if it was forcing me to 
consume more tomato sauce than was healthy for me rather than switching brands, I'd be worried. Yeah, you're right in, in terms of that. I mean, someone, you know, worked for the broadcaster ABC for 27 years, you know, constantly been charged with bias. Yes. Where advertising doesn't have to... It just states, it's, we are. this is the side we're on. We're, we're, we're biased. That's why we're, we're completely here. completely yeah. honest. By the, the way, the point you made right at the beginning of remarks about the birth of the first child being the great change point, still true. Uh, absolutely. Um, um, and, of course, the, the, the average age of the mother at the birth of the first child today is 31.5. Uh, so that choice point is coming much later. A generation ago, the average age of the mother was 22. That's when they uh, start listening to so the ABC, actually. Right, ABC, right. They, they switch from Triple J to right. local radio and Radio National, right. interestingly, is with yeah. the first child. Yeah. So, so just... <laughs> yes, that's true. That's, that's, that's yeah, a good, it is true. Are there any other questions? Or I'll get you back. Oh, great. There's one over here. And one over here. Um, terrific. Um, <clears throat> I just wonder if you're being a bit generous <clears throat> because um, one of the things with advertising <clears throat> is it's designed to sell more, to buy more. And I think that <clears throat> there's an environmental argument now that we can't afford this. Yes. We can't afford this endless pursuit of, of consumerism. Mm. And, my and that daughter, was my, my question about the collapse of capitalism, mm. perhaps. Yeah, that, that's that right. An integral part, yeah. And advertisers will sell anything just mm. to sell more. And it's, it's kind of, I think it's slightly naive to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter whether it's Rosetta or Heinz. The environmental impact of everything we buy now is so serious and in such numbers. So yes. I think we need to hold advertising, advertising to account. Mm for the impact of whatever they sell. Mm. How would you respond yes. to that? Yes. No, I agree with that. Um, but I'd go back a stage and say it's the marketing organisations and their total marketing effort, including advertising, which is the weakest of the marketing factors, uh, but all of the, their, their entire marketing effort promoting consumerism, which is a way of promoting materialism, uh, needs to be called into question. I have ethical difficulties with the whole framework. I regard the part played in that by advertising as tiny um, because mostly it's not selling more. It's doing what I've said earlier. It's getting encouraging. I mean, yes, reinforcement is an encouragement. It's encouraging people to go on doing what they're doing. And if what they're doing is a bad habit, or um, a, a destructive or wasteful habit, then that shouldn't be reinforced. But in the, maybe the dying stages, but at any rate, the current state of capitalist economies, uh, they will do that in the same way as Coles and Woolies will do what they do, and Mercedes and BMW will do what they do, and will go on this mad way of thinking that consumerism uh, is fun, is good for us, uh, therapeutic. Retail therapy is a reality. You know, people do go shopping uh, to relieve their anxieties. I don't think that's good. Uh, I think that's a terrible situation. And, 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 and we are looking at the confluence now of some very, very strong, apparently unrelated imperatives. I mean, the, 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 the global... Um, imperative to do with climate change, uh, our biological imperative to be more cooperative and less competitive, 
uh, and the emotional imperative to relieve. I mean, here's a country like Australia in which we have an epidemic of anxiety. Um, one in three Australians will suffer mental health issues in their lifetime. About 25% of people currently suffering from anxiety, epidemic proportions. Now, those things come together to say there's something crazy about the way we're living. So I'm not endorsing capitalism. I'm not endorsing neoliberalism. Uh, the satire is of one a tip of the iceberg, namely the advertising industry. So I'm not its advocate. <laughs> I'm just suggesting that of all the other problems we've got, this is one of the least. One last question over here, and I think... To be honest, you probably just started to answer my question then. Um, a lot of your non-fiction writing is about, I guess, the quality of human relationships and, you know, the scope of the individual for expression and things like this. Um, so do you not see advertising as having a role, not just in trivialising our political discourse, but in trivialising the quality of human, interpersonal human relationships and our communities with its ubiquity or any, anything else, just taking up our time, having to sort out the truth from the, from the fiction in the agenda all the time. Yeah, it's another one of those lovely questions. I mean, it's almost impossible to answer, but let me, let me just free associate for a minute. Um, uh, advertising, point Alex just made a moment ago, we all know where we stand with advertising. We know what it's going to do. Like anyone who would naively think, oh, I'm, I mean, if advertising were as persuasive as people fear it is, then we'd be changing brands every week. In other words, if the last message we got was influencing us to do, buy something or feel some way, we'd be constantly changing. Whereas as the gentleman at the back reminded us, most of us are constantly not changing. So that's the background, I think, to my answer. Um, and I think uh, if, if you're worried about the, the loss of relationship time that we give to advertising, that's really a bigger issue, isn't it? It's the loss of relationship time we give to the media and most particularly to screens. I mean, I think there is a growing, serious socio-cultural problem about screen time. And that's not really... Advertising is part of it, but it's not the primary driver. It's, it's television programs and it's uh, uh, the internet. Uh, it's Google, it's um, Twitter, Instagram. Put all this together uh, and... The serious worry, the most serious worry I have about the rising generation is not whether they're going to be persuaded to buy X or Y, but that they are spending so much time with a screen that, as neuroscientists are now telling us, that's probably affecting their brains and the development of their brains, and it's certainly affecting relationships because the trade-off is too great. Um, there's some recent research showing... Uh, UK research um, uh, showing that if kids, this was I think 10 to 15 year olds, young adolescents, uh, spend three hours a day with a screen, any screen, doesn't matter about the program content, irrelevant, just any screen, uh, 
they will go to bed, their cortisol levels will be raised, so they'll experience anxiety as a result of three hours of screen time. And when they wake up the next morning, if it's been three hours exposure the day before, when they wake up the next morning, their cortisol levels will still be elevated and they will still be exhibiting symptoms of anxiety after a night's sleep. And I think that's a real worry. Uh, that's a, a worry about the whole information communication technology revolution. And by the way, the, the, researchers, uh, the, the researcher who was quoting this stuff, a uh, British journal um, uh, recently published, made the point that three hours is very significantly less than the average for British kids in that age group. So uh, that, that to me is the real worry. I, I think as parents and grandparents, to say nothing of kids themselves, we need to be monitoring this screen time question much more seriously than we have been. And if we see that our offspring um, or kids that are in any sense in our care are spending more time with the screen than with humans, face-to-face, -face, a very loud warning bell should ring. And I emphasise that the content is almost irrelevant. It's the interaction with the flickering screen that's the real problem. The trouble is, Hugh, I went to one of those sessions for parents telling us all that data and yes. I looked around the room at every single one of the parents <laughs> <laughs> looking at their phone yeah. during the talk and oh. I thought, there's the problem. Oh, that's right. I think, Catherine, do you... Lucy, Lucy's going to give us a... I'm going to say thanks, Dr Lucy Neve. <laughs> I'm a senior lecturer in creative writing at ANU. Um, and, I, and thanks for being here in reality rather than on a screen. It was fantastic to have you here in the flesh. On behalf of the Australian National University, I'd like to thank Hugh McKay, um, Alex Sloan, Catherine for Bell from the, and the National Library of Australia and the audience for a really informative, engaging conversation. So thanks very much everyone thank for you, coming. Lizzie. Please thank you and you and Alex.